All right. Well, uh, I'm especially thankful. I was just thinking about it this morning for some of the people that y'all never see who serve us so well. Uh, like each week we gather and we gather at this table for communion to remember and to proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And this stuff doesn't just appear up here magically. It's servants who come early, uh, who you never see, who are serving us. And we trust, just like we taught on a couple weeks ago, what is done in secret, God will reward openly. And that is the promise of Scripture. And so today we are in week nine of our series through the Sermon on the Mount in this uh, most famous sermon of all time, Jesus presented to His disciples the manifesto of the kingdom of God. And in His manifesto, He explains exactly what it looks like to live under the sovereign rule of King Jesus. Like He taught this first generation who were seated around Him on the mount, this first generation of Christ followers and every subsequent generation, us included, how we are to behave as citizens of His kingdom, like right here and right now. Like as we wait for and as we work for His kingdom's final consummation. And then right in the middle of His kingdom manifesto, Jesus took time to teach us how to pray. Like as He's talking about like a massive thing that God is doing. It's the, it's the fullness of time and it's arrived and He is explaining like what the kingdom is going to be like. In the middle of that, He pauses and He teaches His disciples how to pray and how all Christians throughout the ages, are now to relate to His Father as our Father. In fact, He gives them an anchor for their faith even as they begin to approach God in prayer. He assured them, your Father knows. Like verse 8 of chapter 6, your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And yet, we're still supposed to ask Him. Like we're supposed to ask God what we need. We're supposed to present that to Him knowing that the things that matter to us matter to Him. Like, do you believe that? Like, do you believe this statement? The things that matter to us matter to Him? Because I don't know about you, a lot of stupid things matter to me. Like, things matter to me that shouldn't matter to me. And so how can this be true? But think about it. Dads and moms. Things that would never in a million years matter to you tend to matter to you when they matter to your kids. Like, you get called up in their worries and their concerns and their drama. You get called up in in their longings and their aspirations and their hopes and dreams. The things that matter to us matter to God, not because they are important to God, but because we are. Not because they are important to God, but because you are. 
And so on the heels of this earth-shattering thought that as citizens of a heavenly kingdom, we are invited to know God now as our heavenly Father who is concerned for us, Jesus tells these citizens of the heavenly kingdom, verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And so if you were here about a year ago, during our Until Everyone Knows campaign, you guys hopefully remember me saying over and over and over again that earthly treasure will always be lost. That just makes sense. We get that. It will either leave us while we live or we will leave it when we die. Earthly treasure will always be lost. I don't care how valuable it is, how beautiful it is, how well you take care of it, it will always be lost. But what is given away cannot be taken away. Like if we send it on ahead, it is safe and secure forever. And then Jesus in verse 21 addresses the heart of the issue related to money when He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Like in this one verse right here, like Jesus addresses that age-old question which is, why is there such strong emotion whenever the topic of money comes up in the church? Like, why do people get so irritated or ill or want to get up and leave when we start talking about money? Like, why is that such a big deal to them? Because Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I mean, if it's just money then why do we hold on to it so passionately? Like if it's just money, like why do we flee when people start talking about it or feel bothered or bugged or angry? It's because money represents security. It represents hope. It represents power and validation and our significance. I mean, just test your own heart. If you get a pay decrease at your job, do you feel more valued or less valued? I mean, it just makes sense. So one person may ask, I mean, I think just looking at the number of times money is addressed by Jesus in the Gospels and this topic comes up in the Scripture as a whole, why does what we do with our money matter to God? And of course, the answer is the things that matter to us matter to God. That's why. Because what we do with our money is truly a spiritual decision. Because our faith and our finances are inseparable. That's why it matters to God. Like our treasures exert a power over us. They create a gravitational pull on us, pulling us either back to earth or up to heaven. That's what Jesus is saying when He says, for where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And that gravitational pull kind of reveals our heart, but it can also direct our heart. 
Like what you treasure reveals your heart because as we said last year in that sermon series over and over again, your treasure follows your heart. Like it always does. Like you put your money toward what is really valuable to you. Like we get that. Like we can just do the math. I mean, moms and dads, like we get that because where are you steering your resources right now? Your time and talents and treasures. Where do they go? Well, they go toward your kids. I mean, when you look at what it costs to raise a kid today, why would anyone have kids? Like it seems like such a ripoff. Like last year when I spoke about this topic, like the the amount predicted, estimated, to raise a child born one year ago to the age of 18, not even getting them into college, just to the age of 18, was about $274,000. Well, today, thanks to inflation, doesn't this make you happy? If you have a baby today, it will cost you three hundred. And $75,000 to raise that child just to be at 18. It makes me glad, man. My kids are grown. I got a bargain. I raised all three of them for like $35. (laughs) Like what a deal. And so you think about this. Why would you have kids? Because your treasure follows your heart. Like what dad is it that just holds back from their kids? Like the things that they need, the things that that would benefit them. Like we want to, like we have to use restraint. Otherwise, we spend way too much on their birthday, way too much at Christmas, way too much on their wedding, way too much on their college because our heart is there. And so our gifts and our talents and our resources flow toward them. Like what is really important to us, what is really valuable to our hearts, If you really want to know what it is, all you have to do is follow your money. Our treasure reveals what we truly love. Our money exposes our hearts. And so Christian, like, what do you value most? Right? Well, Jesus. Like, that's the right answer in church, right? Like, I'm reminded of a story I heard years ago of a pastor who visited a child Sunday school class, kind of unannounced and the kids these five-year-old kids were looking up because it was the pastor and he he thought they looked nervous I'll tell them a story and he says okay so what tell me this what lives in a tree has a long furry tail and gathers nuts for the winter and all the kids kind of looked at him terrified and he said come on y'all know this y'all all know this what lives in a tree has a real long furry tail but he gathers nuts and acorns and stuff like that for the winter time nobody answers until one kid finally raises his hand and says well pastor it sounds like a squirrel but because it's you i'm going to say jesus <laughs> and that's always your right answer in church But genuinely, in your heart of hearts, what matters most to you? If you say Jesus, the response should be also in your heart, well, put your money where your mouth is. Like if you spend 99% of all your resources on yourself, on this earth, and you're investing none in the kingdom, you give 1% to God, what does that tell us? 
What should that tell you? Like the gravitational pull of our treasure directs our heart, but it also reveals our heart. Like it can be directed like by our heart. The heart will follow your treasure. Our hearts can be changed. We're no longer slaves to our desires and passions. We can direct our hearts by directing our money. Like if you start caring about something, you really want to start caring about something, invest some time there. Volunteer. If you want to start caring about something like if missions, start giving to missions. Start giving to the poor. Start giving to your local church. Like you invest your treasures, invest your time, invest your talents. Like I'm concerned about what happens in India. I'm concerned because of what happens in Indonesia, not just because we have people there, but because we send our resources there. Your heart will follow your treasure. And so as you give more to the kingdom, your heart becomes more invested in the things of the kingdom. Like how we use our money points to what we truly worship because there's a fundamental truth at play here, which is our spiritual lives are deeply connected to how we spend and use our money. Like what God, when God gets a hold of your heart, He gets a hold of your wallet. He gets a hold of your bank account. He gets a hold of your time. He gets a hold of all your resources. And if you guys understand this, not to be self-serving as a church, like if you think that's the case, give your money elsewhere. But if you refuse to give as a believer, your love for God will have a ceiling. Because you have communicated uh, that there is part of your heart that you are holding back from Him. And so I would encourage you, take seriously the words of Jesus. Where your heart is, your treasure will be also. Sam Storms writes this, materialism is not a problem with possessions, but with perspective. The issue is not how much you have in your grasp, but how tightly your grasp is on what you have. And I think that is so true. Like we need to put our treasure where we want our heart to be. The issue isn't money. It's our perspective on money. You see, it's really a question of focus. And so Jesus addresses our focus with these next words that confuse so many people. Verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if the eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Weren't we just talking about money and treasure? Like what's going on here? Well, Jesus is saying when it comes to your giving and your resources, your treasure and heaven, it's all a question of vision. It's a question of attention. It's a question of focus. The eye is the source of light for your body. Just as the window lets light in a house, the eye lets light into your body. And just as our eye affects our whole body, so our desire where we fix our eyes and our heart and our attention and our focus affects our whole life. Like the word translated healthy there or good in some of your Bibles 
was used in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures to mean singleness of purpose or undivided loyalty. And so what it really means when it says a healthy eye is a singular focused eye. A good eye, a healthy eye, is one that is fixed on God alone. Like unwavering in its gaze. Its vision is not blurred by trying to focus on two objects at the same time. Like I can't look over here at this crowd and at the same time look over here unless I want to be cross-eyed. And so here's, here's the reality. Jesus lands the plane in verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can't submit to two kings. You can't obey two commanders. You can't worship two gods. In fact, the word translated money there is the word mammon. Maybe you have that if you have a King James Bible. Originally, that word simply meant something to which one puts their confidence. And so Jesus is saying, you cannot hedge your bets with God. Like you cannot rest your confidence and your security in two different masters. You only have room for one. And so, like that's the message on resources. And if you're like most uh, church folks in America, your thought is, okay, I get it. That's a good stewardship principle, but can we move on, please? Like, what about me? What about my family? Like, I have needs too. And so remember, the things that matter to us matter to God. Like, that's how Jesus introduces this whole idea. The things that matter to us matter to God, not because they are important to God, but because we are. And so Jesus actually addresses our needs. He says, therefore, and you got to wonder what is the therefore, 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 I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear, If is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? And so what is the therefore, therefore? It's because if we are going to obey the first few verses here and put our treasure in heaven instead of on earth, and trust God and put our treasure where we want our heart to be, fear will inevitably raise its head. That's just natural. It's just normal. Like the enemy that we have attacks us either through materialism or if we think that we beat materialism, he will then attack us through anxiety as we give those resources away uh, to kingdom purposes. And so Jesus addresses our very natural fears with these words. Look at the birds of the air. I neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about your clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is 
today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. And so with these words, Jesus kind of, I think, gently rebukes the worriers among us, which I am one. Anyone else? Any other worriers? How about liars? There we go. Well, He rebukes the worrier with these words, Oh, you of little faith. This is the kind of stuff that the Gentiles, meaning the pagans, the unbelievers worry about. Like, don't you remember? Your heavenly Father knows what you need even before you ask Him. Your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. Don't you remember that the things that matter to us matter to Him? And so Jesus points out that the root cause of our worry is a failure to trust God to keep His promises. Like we either doubt His promise or we doubt His power to keep that promise or we doubt His perspective on what our needs are. Like God, I said, you know, meet all my needs, but I, I really needed a, a car with, you know, a better engine or a nicer, you know, tow package or whatever. God, I know, I know that I presented my needs before you, but I also presented some of those wants. And if you could push them to the front. So in verse 34, Jesus speaks four words intended to dispel all the worry from the heart of the Christian. In fact, I would, if I were you, this is the easiest uh, like scripture memory ever. It's like memorizing Jesus wept. Just memorize these four words Your heavenly Father knows. And so as you go through your week this coming week and you are faced with issues on the job or lack of a job, your issues with your money or lack of money, your issues with your health or your friendships or your family or whatever, just remind yourself with those words, your heavenly Father knows. Like He knows. Like it doesn't escape Him. He's not in heaven saying, whoa, what, what just happened to Bobby? Oh my goodness. Like I took my eyes off of him for just 100 or so years and this happens. Of course not. Your heavenly Father knows. The knowledge of the Father's care for us is the cure for worry. And like I said, I, I feel like this is a, a gentle rebuke. Like it really comes down to how you hear it. Some people hear this and they're just deeply burdened by it. Others hear this and it doesn't even faze them. Jesus is giving us a gentle rebuke here. But really, it's incredibly serious. To worry is to behave like you're a spiritual orphan. Like, don't you even have a father? Like, don't you have a heavenly father who's promised to meet all your needs? Like, don't you have a heavenly Father who cares for you and knows what you ask before you even ask it? 
Like, don't you have a heavenly Father who saw you as you were being formed in your mother's womb and He gently knit you together in that secret place? Isn't that your Father? Like, don't you have a heavenly Father who you can't flee from His presence? And even in the dark, He sees you because darkness is like light to Him? Don't you have that heavenly Father? Like To worry is to behave like you're a spiritual orphan. And so D.A. Carson writes this, our worries must not sound like the worries of the world. When the Christian faces the pressure of examinations, does he sound like the pagan in the next room? When he is short of money, even for the essentials, does he complain with the same tone, the same words, the same attitude as those around him? Away with secular thinking. The follower of Jesus must be concerned to have a distinctive lifestyle, one that is characterized by values and perspectives so unpagan that his life and conduct are, as it were, stamped all over with the words made in the kingdom of God. Away with those pagan thoughts. Away with that unchristian worry. So how should the believer respond to the sin of worry? Because that's what Jesus calls it here. How should we respond to the sin of worry? Well, the same way we should respond to every sin. Confess it and repent of it. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess it, repent of it, and then fight it with the promises of God. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Paul tells us, don't worry about anything. Pray about everything. And so if you think the thing that you are worried about is too stupid to pray about, then it's too stupid to worry about. So just pray about it. Like however minor it is, you have a relationship with your heavenly Father and what matters to you matters to Him because you matter to Him. Like when you worry about what people might do to you, remember Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? If you worry about being incapable or weak, remember 2 Corinthians 12.9, My grace is sufficient for you because My power is perfected in your weakness. If you worry about getting older, remember Isaiah 46.4, Even to your old age, I shall be the same. And even to the graying of your hair, I shall carry you. And if you worry about 
failing or falling away, remember Philippians 1.6, I am confident of this very thing that He who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And if you worry about whether or not God will actually keep the promises He's made to you, remember Hebrews 6.18, it is impossible for God to lie. Like, confess it. Repent over it, but then fight it with the Word of God. Fight it with the promises of our Father. And so I'm just kind of wondering, once again, like how are you feeling right now hearing those words? Like how I wonder how the people who heard this sermon from Jesus felt at that moment. Like I think there are a number, like any number of responses that people could have. I'm just going to give you three. Like I can picture three different people hearing this original sermon from Jesus. And I'll, I'll just call the first one Mr. Irresponsible. Like he's the guy who doesn't have a care in the world. So when Jesus says don't worry, he's like, okay, cool. I wasn't worried anyway, but now I'm validated by not worrying. Like life, like, like life will just take care of itself. Like I'll just live with my parents for the rest of my life. I'll play Xbox. It's all good. And so this guy is happy with what Jesus teaches, but he shouldn't be. Like he's missing the point. Like Mr. Irresponsible doesn't get it. The second person who hears it is Mr. Hyper-responsible. This is the person who has so many concerns and his life is filled with the care of others, caring for his family, caring for other families. Like he is, he's taxed at work and he's got so much burden on him. And he hears a sermon like this and he's ashamed of his lack of faith and then he begins to worry about his problem with worry. Like this guy's like in it deep. He's got a problem. And there are many of y'all who are in this category. You hear a sermon telling you not to worry and now you got something new to worry about. And of course, you miss the point. And then there's Mr. the person I would call Mr. Uh, Tribulation. This is somebody who beyond the pressures of life is dealing with some deep hurt and wounding. He's dealing with uh, a spouse that is sick or uh, constant issues like with his family or employment or whatever. And he hears a sermon about not worrying instead of saying amen. He just gets angry. He's a little bit bitter. And he thinks, like you have no idea. Like it's easy for you pastor to get up there and say don't worry because you don't go through what I am going through. You know? Bury a parent and then maybe you will know. Deal with the loss of a child and then maybe you will know. And the response to all of these people from Jesus is the same. Your heavenly Father knows. I don't know. I don't know what you're going through. Like, I I know so many of y'all in this room, and I don't know what you're going through. I don't know how you hear a message like this, what goes through your heart, what goes through your mind, the thoughts it stirs up, the fears it creates. I don't know. But your heavenly Father knows. And the things that matter to us, the things that matter to you, matter to Him. And so we pray. We have confidence. 
And instead of worrying, like, what do we take all of our attention that's been focused on, like, will I get a job or will I keep a job? Will I stay healthy? Will I get healthy? Where do I focus our attention? Jesus says, verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Don't just seek the kingdom of God, but know that all these things that you're worried about, all these things that plague you, all these things that keep you up at night, trust that to the Father. The things that matter to Him should matter to us. It's like Jesus is saying, you worry about My kingdom and let me worry about yours. And guys, when we do, there's a change of perspective. Our worry becomes prayer. Our giving becomes an investment. Our alms to the poor become what the Scripture calls lending to the Lord. Like a huge change in perspective. And so Jesus says, therefore, let's wrap this up, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. That's Jesus' way of saying, come on guys. Like, don't borrow trouble. As, as James Merritt writes, worrying never solved a problem. It never dried a tear. It never lifted a burden. It never removed an obstacle. It never made bad things good or good things better. So stop worrying and start seeking. You don't have to worry, Christian, because you have a heavenly Father. 1 Peter 5.6 tells us to cast all our anxiety on Him. Why? Because He's strong and He can handle it? It's a weight that He can bear? Well, yeah. But that's not what Peter says. He says, cast all your anxiety, all your fear on God because He cares for you. You matter to God. Sinclair Ferguson wraps all of this up with these great words. Your life is in the hands of your Father. He has designed it. He knows the end of it from the beginning. He plans each step of the way to fulfill His purpose for you and through you. You will have all that you need to fulfill that purpose. And when that is accomplished, you will be taken home to be with Him. Why worry when He has your life in His hands? Your worry is a sign that you do not adequately know Him or that you do not trust Him or that you have not yielded to Him as you ought. It is only when we want to take our lives out of the Father's hands and have them under our own control that we find ourselves gripped with anxiety. The secret of freedom from anxiety is freedom from ourselves and abandonment of our plans. But that Spirit emerges in our lives only when our minds are filled with the knowledge that our Father can be trusted implicitly to supply everything we need. Do not worry because you have a Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I am so grateful that I can call You Father. You are God. You are Lord Most High. You are the Lord of hosts. You are 
Elohim, Yahweh. You are the Father of Jesus, but you are our Father, our Abba. Lord Jesus, I thank You that You taught us to pray to our Father. Not just simply the God of Israel, the God of all might and power, the God of the covenant. He is all of that and more, but He is for us, Father. And Father, we thank You that in Your great plan for our redemption, You sent Your one and only Son into the world to bear our sin, to die on the cross and rise again so that as we are adopted into Your family, His Father becomes our Father. And so we pray now that You would bless these elements of communion, this bread and this cup, that it would be nourishment for us this week. And Lord, we pray that You would nourish us in the Word, nourish us in Your truth, and that this week, those words would echo through our minds and hearts. Your heavenly Father knows He knew that we were sinners lost in our sin, unable to save ourselves. And He sent Jesus. Your heavenly Father knows. He knows our job situation or lack of it. He knows our bills. He knows our concerns. He knows the ache in our hearts for our children or our grandchildren or our husband or our wife. He knows the battles we have with flesh and with sin and with the devil, Your heavenly Father knows. Father, thank You that what matters to me, what matters to us, matters to You. Because in Your grace and sovereignty, You have chosen for us to matter to You. God, bless this table now, we pray, through Christ our Lord. Amen.